0: Good morning. I don't know if you noticed before we started this morning, I was standing here in front and I was just looking around, scanning the congregation. Do you know what I was doing? I was making sure that no one came in and inspected the pew before they sat down. And to my knowledge, nobody did. To my knowledge, at least as far as I could see, nobody came in, got down on their knees, looked under the pew to see if all the screws were screwed in tightly, and nobody kind of handled it to see if it would hold their weight. You came in, you plopped down in a pew expecting, expecting it to hold you up. Remember when, many years ago, you would go to the doctor, and he would give you a prescription, and you would take that prescription to the pharmacist? Before the days of faxes and computers... In fact, you'd look at the prescription on the way to the pharmacist, and you'd say, there's no way he's going to be able to read this. I mean, is this Chinese? What is this? And you would take it to your pharmacist, and he would disappear behind a screen, and he would come out with a bottle of pills and some instructions. And you would go home, and you would follow those instructions and take those pills as directed. And you know why you did that? Because you wanted to get well. Or maybe you drove to church this morning. And you got in your vehicle and you put the key in the ignition and you turned it and the car started and you have no idea how that process happens, but the car started and you got from your house to the church building without any kind of problem. You trusted that that vehicle was going to get you here. You see, faith is about whatever it is that you put your trust in. And it's not unique to Christianity, not by any means. We put our faith and trust in things all the time. In fact, many times a day, we put our faith and trust in something, thinking that it's going to work, trusting that it is. You know, and faith is not unique to Christianity because I can have faith in a lot of things, and that faith can be well-placed or misplaced. I can have all the faith in the world that if I jump off the Enterprise building here in Abilene, that I will fly. I can believe that with all my heart and still splatter on the ground. I can have all the faith in the world that Randy Turner is right and that it's going to absolutely rain and it not. Or I can believe that he's wrong and it's still coming down poor. I can have faith, and I can put that faith in a lot of different things. But it can be well-placed or misplaced. But here's the deal. When it comes to faith, it's not about quantity. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about what you have faith in. It's not the amount of faith that you have or don't have. It's what you place that faith in. Let's say that I'm wanting to fly to Dallas, but I don't want to pay the expensive airline ticket. And so I go find some random guy off the street, and I say, hey, you want to fly me to Dallas? And he says, Dallas, where's that? And you say, I don't know. I think it's east of here somewhere. And he says, sure, I'll try it. And so he takes me to the airport and he's about to get into some contraption that kind of looks like a plane. There's a fuselage, there's one wing, a bent prop. The tail assembly has been, you know, worked over several times to where it's not exactly right. And I ask him, I say, well, you do know how to fly, right? And he goes, no. No, but I've always wanted to. And he says, hop in. If I get in that plane, that is not faith. That's foolishness. And we have to understand the difference. Just because you believe something doesn't mean that it's good, wholehearted faith. Again, faith is not unique to Christianity. We put our faith and trust in things all the time, whether it be money or stuff or or whatever it is. We've got to determine what the object of our faith is. And we've got to make sure that it's something worthy of our faith, worthy of our trust, because some things that we put our faith in are absolutely worthless. You know, Sometimes faith is, is dangerous, too, and we struggle with it. And you wonder, why do we struggle with faith? Why do we have no issue putting our faith and trust in so many things that don't deliver, and yet we have struggles in putting our faith and trust in God? Why is that? I think part of it is because of the definition of faith that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But God, it would be so much easier if you would just perform a miracle in front of us. If you would just come to earth where we can touch you and and, and feel you and see you and, and carry on a conversation with you. My faith would be so much better if you would just do that. You remember the Israelites? They had God in their presence. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. They were there when he administered the ten plagues. They were there when he parted the Red Sea. They received the manna from heaven. He communicated to them through Moses. And don't you remember how much that did for their faith and how they felt so close to God and how they were closer to God than ever because they had him in their presence all the time? You remember that? No, you don't remember that because that's not what happened. They had God in a more tangible form than us, and it did nothing to increase their faith. In fact, God had to wipe them out and start all over. Do you remember the apostles? Remember that they were following Jesus on his heels, seeing him heal people who were crippled, who were lame, people who had diseases. They saw him still a storm with just a word. They saw him teaching and preaching, they saw him exercising demons. And yet they still struggled with faith, didn't they? You remember John the baptizer? You know, John was there, he baptized Jesus. Not only that, he saw the heavens open up and the Spirit descend like a dove. And he heard the audible voice of God say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet, when John was sitting in a prison cell waiting for his head to be removed from his body, The situation's a little tense, and he starts to get nervous, and he starts questioning, doesn't he? And so he sends two of his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the expected one? Expected one there is the word er erkomai, and he actually used that word earlier in reference to Jesus. He fully believed that Jesus was the expected one, but now sitting in a dark, damp prison cell, he is wondering, is it all worth it? Jesus, are you really the one that I should be dying for? I just want to make sure before I go through with this. Remember Thomas, the one that we often refer to as Doubting Thomas? He wasn't going to believe until he saw the scars with his own eyes. In fact, he said, I won't believe until you show them to me. And then Jesus appears for that purpose, and Jesus even invites him to put his hands into the scars. And once Thomas sees for himself, he says, just very simply, my Lord, my God. Of course, we often give Thomas a bad rap, but all the apostles struggled, didn't they? We shouldn't assume that having a more tangible, visible, audible God or Jesus in front of us is going to increase our faith, is going to deepen our faith or make us more faithful. We shouldn't assume that because we see through the Scriptures that seeing is not necessarily believing. It wasn't for the Israelites, it wasn't for the apostles, it wasn't for John the baptizer, it wasn't necessarily for Thomas until he saw Jesus face to face. When it comes to biblical faith... We must trust the one who has provided us with ample evidence. While we may never see God or Jesus face to face in this life, while we have have never been presented the scars, we still have a mountain of evidence presented to us in Scripture. And notice what John writes in John 20, starting in verse 30. This is right after that episode with Thomas we just mentioned. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Isn't it interesting that immediately following Jesus' words to Thomas that John records, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed, right after that, John then writes, there's enough evidence to produce living faith. That's basically what he's saying, right? There is a mountain of evidence. You don't have to see Jesus face to face. You don't have to touch the scars. There's enough evidence to convict anyone if you'll trust in the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. There is ample evidence in the written word that testifies to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and that all he did that's important for us to know is recorded here. Here's something that we need to understand. Biblical faith is not a leap in the dark. Jesus never asked us to follow blindly. What Jesus always proposed to the skeptics to the potential followers was this consider the evidence see for yourselves. you've seen what I've done you make a decision when John the baptizer was sitting in that prison cell when doubt started to creep in he sends those two folks to go and ask Jesus are you the expected one or should we expect someone else are you really who you say you are are you truly the messiah because i'm about to have my head removed and i want to make sure that i am believing and trusting in the right person and how does jesus respond he doesn't say yeah go back and tell john look you have nothing to worry about i promise you i am who i say i am he doesn't say that i also want you to notice that that jesus doesn't scold john for asking that question in fact Scripture leaves no doubt as to how Jesus felt about John because he says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds to those who were asking the question for John. He says, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, you go tell John, consider the evidence for himself. He doesn't need me to tell him. I'm the expected one, and even referred to me as that in the beginning. He baptized me. He saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove. He knows this. Just go back and reassure him that what he has seen is true. And if he can't believe after all that, words aren't going to help anyway, right? Isn't it interesting that Jesus responds with, consider the evidence, because when it comes to faith, rather than using the phrase seeing is believing we probably should use the phrase believing is seeing because when we believe with all of our being when we trust in jesus as our lord and savior we choose to step out in faith and follow him we see things differently we see life differently we look at people differently we look at our relationships differently suddenly life has a different meaning and purpose our vision has been changed And that's what faith does. Faith is the corrective lens that we need to see life from a different perspective, a godly perspective, because it's through the optics of faith that we see things in a way that Jesus sees them, that God sees them. It's a heavenly vision. Our vision becomes His vision. And so we see salvation, we see hope, we see victory. And that vision changes everything. Remember when Saul was on the road to Damascus and he had an encounter with Jesus? It changed everything didn't it for three days he was blind and then those scales fell from his eyes and I think they were representative of seeing life in a different perspective from a salvation perspective and none of us have had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus but we've all encountered Jesus those of you who are Christians all of you have had an encounter with Jesus and it's changed you it's a monumental change in your life it's a profound change in your life you're seeing things differently you see people differently first of all you saw sin differently right You see relationships differently you see the church differently you encountered the blood of christ at baptism it changed your entire being when our faith is well placed it does that but here's something else to consider faith is by chance it's not by it's by choice not by chance i should say again Jesus never asked you to follow blindly. Faith, faith is not a feeling. It's not an emotional high. It's not a mental ascent. Faith is a decision of the will, and we all have a choice as whether to follow Jesus or not. Jesus said, "Consider the evidence," and there is a mountain of evidence. We step out in faith and we say, I believe the evidence, I'm convicted, I'm going to follow Jesus. Or we say, I don't care about the evidence, I'm going to do my own thing. But even in that case, you have to have faith. Even the atheist has faith. He can't deny that. The atheist must step out in faith and say, I know what the evidence says, and yet I'm going to choose to ignore it. I'm going to choose to believe it, or not to believe it. That is the choice that we all have. Faith is a choice. And there is a wealth of evidence to convict someone, but ultimately we have to step out and go in the direction of God or not. Pharisees were eyewitnesses to the miracles of Jesus. They saw Jesus in action. They saw him firsthand, and yet they turned their backs. They chose not to believe. The evidence was astonishing, it was overwhelming, but they refused to buy in. So seeing isn't always believing. A choice has to be made. And it seems remarkable that anyone could consider all of the evidence and still turn their back to Jesus and refuse to follow him. But the Pharisees prove that that can happen. Many of you have probably heard of Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and philosopher. And Pascal had a very pragmatic reason for trusting God. And I I feel like I'm a pretty pragmatic person, and so I like how he puts it. He basically says that humans bet their souls on whether God exists or not. I can summarize it like this this is Pascal's wager. If you live a life of obedience to the Lord, only to find out in the end that it was all a fallacy, what did you lose? And the answer to that question is nothing, right? It was still a good way to live. However, if you live a life that rejects God day by day only to find out in the end that He was real and His ways were true, what did you lose? Everything. Everything. And so Pascal is saying, atheism is a terrible bet. It's a horrible bet. It gives you absolutely no chance of winning the prize. Suppose you're lying on your deathbed, and the doctor comes in and says, you know, we do have this experimental drug. And I would say there's a 50-50 chance it'll make you well. Doesn't cost anything. If it doesn't work, it's not going to make you worse. What would you say to that? Well, let's try it, right? I mean, you'd be silly not to try it. If there's no cost, if it's not going to make you worse, you're going to die anyway. At least try it, right? If you and your spouse are out somewhere and your kids have been left at home and you hear a report that there's a fire in your neighborhood, you're probably going to investigate to see if it's your house, right? You don't know if the report's true even, but you're probably going to do a little investigation to make sure it's not your home and that your kids are safe, right? We are betting our souls on this whole Christianity thing. And Pascal's wager can be stated like this. Actually, this is how he stated it. He said, I should be much more afraid of being mistaken and then finding out that Christianity is true than of being mistaken and believing it to be true. The story is told of an atheist who visited a, a rabbi by the name of Martin Buber. And the atheist comes in and he wants to interview Martin Buber. And he asked him the question Is God real? And Buber refused to answer his question. He said, prove to me that God exists, and Martin Buber would not do it. And this made the atheist very angry. And so he gets up to leave, and just before he leaves, Martin Buber says to him these words, can you be sure there is no God? And 40 years later, the atheist wrote these words. He said, I'm still an atheist, but Rabbi Buber's question has haunted me every day of my life. Atheism is a terrible bet. It gives you no shot at winning the prize. You know, there are certain subjects that every time I preach on them, I feel compelled to give a disclaimer. And I think faith is one of those. I know you've heard this time and time again, but I feel it my responsibility to tell you that faith is a verb, it does something. There's so much confusion in the religious world about faith, and that confusion hinges on the fact that so many people deny that faith does something. It demonstrates itself in action. And I can show you that over and over again in Scripture. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, and you just go through that faith hall of fame, and you see over and over again that faith does something. You look through that list and you'll notice that faith is always proven in action. It was proven by offering a better sacrifice or being pleasing to God or by seeking Him or by preparing something like an ark. It always proves itself. It's not enough to say, I believe. Because when God hears, I believe, I believe, He says, then prove it. You believe, then prove it. That's what Nicodemus did, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and that's significant. Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? Because he's a Pharisee. He didn't want people seeing him there. He didn't want people to know about it. And he comes to Jesus, and he gives him a glowing compliment, right? Rabbi, I know that you're a teacher, that you're from God. And what does Jesus do? He immediately gives him some conditions. He immediately says, look, I don't care that you believe. You need to go. You need to be born again of the water and the Spirit, because that's what's going to take. It's not just about believing in me. You know, we often use that term and we throw it around in the religious world. Well, so-and-so is a believer. So what? Prove it. Show me you believe. I believe that's what God is saying. I believe that's what Jesus said. You see that over and over again in the Gospels, right? You believe, well, then prove it. That's what Abraham did, right? I mean, Abraham was a man who God began the salvation of the world through him. And Abraham trusted in God to take his family, to leave his homeland, to journey into the unknown, to face one obstacle after another, to be willing to sacrifice his son Isaac, to completely buy into God's plan. And notice what the Hebrew writer states about Abraham. Verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Not knowing where he was going. God was Abraham's guide. It takes tremendous faith to let God lead you. To have no GPS, to no map, no atlas or anything to allow God to be your guide into a journey of the unknown. But Abraham beautifully illustrates to us faith that is proven. And you look throughout the scriptures. We see over and over again that faith is proven in action. And we also see this. Faith is risky. Faith takes risks, which means that it can be scary as well. Faith is always associated with risk. Have you noticed that? You look throughout the Bible, Old to New Testament, faith is always associated with risk. Think about all the great people of faith that you read about in the Bible. Every single one of them risked something, whether it was Moses or Abraham or Joshua or Daniel or Paul or Stephen. The list goes on and on. And Jesus was honest enough with us to say that if you step out in faith, it's going to take risks. It's got to, it's going to be risky. Our Lord presented discipleship as a huge risk. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember the parable of the talents? Remember how the the man who was given one talent was cast out into exile into the into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know why he was cast out? Do you remember that story? He was cast out because he buried the talent that was given him. He didn't take any risk with it. And Jesus made him pay for it. Faith is associated with risk. Because it doesn't take faith to play it safe. You don't need any faith if you're just going to play it safe, if you're just going to stay within your little comfort zone and stay in your box and never step out. You don't need faith to do that. But to follow Jesus, to pick up your cross, to follow him up the hill to Calgary, to follow him into the valley of the shadow of death, that's going to take risks. We must be willing to do that because it doesn't take risk. It doesn't take faith, I should say, to play it safe. Relationships don't start with faith. They begin with risk. You know, if I move to a new town, and my car breaks down, I need a mechanic. I don't know anybody. There's a dozen mechanics, I don't know any of them though. And so I ask some people that I've come to know and they tell me about this one guy and so I take my vehicle to him for him to fix it. I still have no trust in him, I don't know him. I'm just trusting the word of my friends. But if he fixes my car at a reasonable price and he takes good care of me, if he does that enough times, then over time I begin to trust him that trust builds, that faith builds in him over time. Relationships start with risk. Of course, I believe that our our, our faith is well-placed. I believe it's worth the risk to go all in with God, to have a relationship with him. But that's the start, right? When you make that choice, you are taking a risk. But it's well worth it. I know of people who have come to me and they say, you know, my relationship with God is not what it needs to be. And I know of people who have blamed God because their life hasn't worked out the way that they had thought it should and all that. And and what you notice after talking with them after a while is that the relationship has never been what it should be from their side of it. They've never completely gone all in. Their prayer life isn't what it should be. Their church life isn't what it should be. Their their spiritual disciplines, like studying the Bible and those things, they haven't been doing that. How do we expect the relationship to be the best it can be when we're staying at a distance? How can we expect for God to give us the maximum and when we only give Him the minimum? You see, a lot of times... The relationship is failing, and it's failing because of us, because we haven't gone all in in faith. In Mark chapter 4, we see the disciples afraid that a storm out on the sea is going to overtake their boat and break it in pieces and send them into a watery grave. And so they're scared, and they cry out to Jesus, Save us, Lord. And he does. He stops the storm with just a word. And then he says to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I think a key word there is still. You still have no faith? Where's your faith? I mean, I, I'm in the boat with you. You've seen me do enough things that you should have trust and faith in me, but you still don't? I think that's the key word there. Jesus marveled at the fact that their faith had not developed more. They still had trust issues. And maybe, maybe you do as well. Maybe you still have trust issues in a relationship with God. And let me just tell you, you will. You will always have trust issues in a relationship with God if you don't step out and risk it with faith. You cannot have a close relationship with God without stepping out and risking it all because faith is a process. It should grow and develop over time, and that's never going to happen if you just play it safe. Never. You know, while preparing the sermon, I thought, man, I really want to punctuate this in the best way possible. So I did what I normally do. I looked through my files to try to find a, a perfect illustration on faith. None of them really stuck out to me. They didn't really fit. And so the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, I thought, you know, do we have to end with a profound illustration? Maybe we just end with God's word. So I want to close it out this morning the way we started this morning. James started us with a wonderful piece of scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's close by hearing the word of God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Notice that. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think all of you here this morning want to please God or you wouldn't be here. But how many of you have stepped out in full faith and taken the risk to go all in and say, this is it, I'm pushing all my chips to the center of the table and if there is no God, if there is no Jesus, then so be it. But this is the risk that I'm willing to take. I'm betting it all on God and a relationship with Him. And if I get to the end and it was all a falsehood, so be it. I'm willing to risk it all for Him. I want to encourage you this morning. If you haven't already, to suspend disbelief and go all in. That doesn't mean that you're not still going to have some questions, okay? I hear people say all the time, well, I I have doubts, and so therefore I'm not faithful. No, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. We can still have some doubts. I mean, John the baptizer did, right? And Jesus didn't scold him for that. He just reminded him to consider the evidence. And so I want to encourage you this morning. Don't play it safe. And if we can help you, If you need to get on track this morning, you need the prayers, this church family, if you're ready to step in to the baptistry, be buried with him in baptism, rise a new creature in Christ, and begin a walk with him daily, then let's do that. Whatever your need is, step out and take the risk this morning. Come now as we stand and as we sing.